good afternoon from Sydney, Australia. Friday the 8th of November. Nearly summer in Sydney. In Sydney we declare 1st of December summer. So less than a month away till summer in Sydney. Episode 29 of the It's a Monkey podcast. And boy, do we have an exciting show for you today. Twitter listed overnight, Australia time. We're going to talk all about Twitter. We're also going to be talking to Rebecca Campbell, who is the CEO and founder of an interesting startup called Posse. So please stick with us. And very happy to say co-founder James Peter is back from New Zealand. Well, uh, Welcome. Yep, I made it back back safely. Didn't uh, get eaten by any kiwis or anything while I was over there. <laughs> didn't eat any kiwis. Um, so James was... I didn't all, eat any kiwis when I was over there. <laughs> uh, I mean, they obviously have kiwi fruit there. That's where it's from, right? Yeah, they have kiwi fruit, yeah. 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 So James was away getting married and having honeymoons and doing all real life stuff in New Zealand. Yep, not, not thinking about uh, Twitter's stock price at all. Is that the, is this the longest period that you have not coded for? Uh, yeah, it could be actually. Yeah, probably probably was actually. Probably was the longest period for uh, yeah, a very long time. How was it getting back in? Uh, it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, like yeah. riding a bike. It's not something that um, <laughs> it's kind of second nature these days. Um, well, good to have you back. Um, we had some interesting co-hosts, uh, but definitely nice to have you back on board. Let's get straight into it, James. Twitter listed overnight, and I was one of the crazy people that uh, I set my alarm for one thirty a.m. Sydney time, and I woke up and I was waiting f- um, for Twitter to, to to kick in, and I was getting all excited and uh, <laughs> it was getting in the spirit of it. Getting in the spirit of That's it, great. and um, so I was up, and uh, it, it, of course, Twitter was. Um, listed to the institutions at $26 and then it popped all the way up to the late 40s, even touched $50 mm, at one crazy. point. So it basically and ended up 70% on its listed price. And you know what the crazy thing is? It's bas- it was nearly the, the price of Facebook. It's nearly what Facebook is now, right? Exactly. As opposed to what Facebook was when it, when it, um, when it IPO'd. So, yeah, kind of crazy. <laughs> crazy. I mean, 70% up and, um, you know, the price of Facebook, but Facebook has got a lot more revenue and it's making a profit. And yet, you know, people are, are, are you know, they believe in the dream of Twitter for some reason. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's no way I'd be buying it at uh, 46. No. Would you be buying it at 46? No, definitely not. I actually had an order in at... Um, Twenty dollars oh, because okay. I thought if it went the other way, I'll, yeah, I'll, then it's I'll, worth it. Definitely, then yeah. I'll get it. But um, you know, but it didn't. Let, let's, you know, I've I've been looking at um, some of the stats. I mean, firstly, let's let's just talk about the forty-seven dollar share price. One of the analysts said. Um, with a price that pushes into the high 30s and beyond, Twitter is simply too expensive. To justify the opening price of $45.10, um, Twitter would have to report more than $6 billion in annual sales by 2018 compared with the roughly $600 million expected this year. So basically, the, what that means is the market is saying that they expect Twitter to increase their revenue 10 times by 2000 and um, from a pretty high base. I mean, mm. $600 million to $6 billion, it's a pretty high base. Um, Ten times to... By, t- by what period? 2018, so five years. Mm. It's yeah, possible. It's possible. It's possible, but I don't think it's very likely. And I mean, it's very hard to... Um, I really don't think it's going to be sustainable, that price. I'd be incredibly surprised if it, in a week if it's still there. 
Look, I think at the moment it's very much a bit of a uh, you know roulette, red or black situation. You know, if mm. you it's, it's a bit of a gamble situation at the moment. If you believe that Twitter's revenue can go from six hundred million to six billion, well, yeah, great, go for mm. it. You know, it and they may or they may not, but it's but it's um, professional podcast <laughs> studio activity happening. Um, but yeah it's 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 th- th- they may sort of get that flywheel going but um it's definitely there's a there's a huge amount of risk in there yeah it's it's so surprising as well i mean i think everybody thought that even at uh well, i think a lot of people were saying you know even at sort of 26 it was it was overpriced so for it to jump jump up that quickly um in trading it's, yeah it's very surprising Let's just have a quick look at the comparisons of other companies that have listed over the last little while. So Twitter listed um, quarterly revenue was $139 million uh, revenue. To, that's turnover. When Facebook listed, their quarterly revenue was nearly 10 times that of $1.1 billion. Um, Zynga quarterly revenue when they listed, that's a big game company, $243 million. So when Zynga listed, they were turning over more than Twitter. Mm. Um, LinkedIn, when they listed, were only turning over $62 million um, quarterly. Google, when they listed, was turning over $652 million in the quarter. Um, interesting, the stock price since uh, increased since listing. Um, Zynga is down 61% since listing. Of course, Zynga's got all sorts yeah. of problems, but, you know, staff, challenges, everything. LinkedIn is up 160% since listing. Google, of course, is the, the shining star. Do you know how much it's up since listing? Oh, I don't want to know. thousand? <laughs> You're pretty close. Yeah. 773 yeah, well, yeah. since listing. And, of course, Facebook, uh, Twitter's just, you know, um, gone up to 70% and Facebook is up 29%. So interesting mm. to compare the the, um, the different stocks. Some other stats that are um, very interesting is what if you had invested $1,000 in these internet IPOs to, <laughs> to, to, to com- comparison. So Zynga, if you invested $1,000, would be worth now because it's down about $364. Um, of course, there's many of the dot-com boom, pets.com. If you invested $1,000, would be worth zero now. Uh, but the interesting ones are the ones that have done well. Um, Amazon, if you invested $1,000 in Amazon in 1997, it would now be worth $239,000. Wow. It's a pretty fantastic return. Um, and eBay, if you invested $1,000 in 1998, $68,000. Yahoo, in 1996, $1,000 would be $61,000. Google in 2004, um, $1,000 would, uh, t- would uh, you'd have $12,000 now. LinkedIn, which is only 2011, so it's pretty good, um, nearly $5,000. And Facebook, um, which of course is only 2012, is $1,300. So quite interesting to compare the all the different... Um, sort of listing so exciting times to see but but definitely the market is backing twitter mm. at the moment at least based on based on the one day they yep. are backing twitter mm. what uh, what was the path of facebook did they go straight down or was it they went up a little bit first they went up the first day good good question um 
could probably look it up actually. I get a little bit confused between the the, the first day pop. I don't think they popped on the first mm. day. No, it doesn't look like it I from what I can see here. I don't think they popped on the first day, Facebook, but they yeah, no, they went straight. They down listed at thirty seven, and then they ultimately came all the way back down to about seventeen, and now mm. they back up into the late forties. Yeah, it was actually a fairly slow slide. It took a month or so to go down to the seventeen. But, um, yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting, yeah. I mean, it's v- people get very critical when a, you know, when a share pops this much because, in a way, they feel that um, the bankers who manage all this listing mm, have... Make the money. Well, they've left money on the table, mm. you know, because Twitter sold their shares to the institutions at $26. Like, yeah. the market's paying them for 45 mm. There was heaps of space for Twitter to push that right up and yep. to, you know you know get get at least 50 percent more which is significant mm. amount yeah possibly, of value yeah. but they very hard because if if it doesn't pop then it also lands up look like um the perception was what happened with facebook mm. uh, it was overpriced yeah i mean the other way around is also you know if it had if it had been at the 40 mark maybe people would have gone the other way <laughs> exactly <laughs> it was overvalued so exactly it might not have not have uh, sustained the market not, might not have sustained that price so it's the long term. The long term washes it out. And unless you're a day trader or trying to ride these waves, which um, very few people can do properly. So um, anyway, we'll obviously watch it with. Um, and of course, you know, I got a personal phone call from Dick saying, um, mm, you know, th- thank th- you for your help. Yeah, just, you know, <laughs> the ecosystem has been yeah. an important part of the success. Yeah. And, um, and uh, he'll be watching and manage for the IPOs. <laughs> <laughs> Hey man, you know, <laughs> don't knock manage Flitter. We keep hitting, hey, we're hitting two million users next week. Yeah, uh, yeah, not that far off. Um, if what are we sort of one uh, percent of Twitter? So that's not bad. Yeah, one, something. One, an important one percent though. Yeah, I'd definitely. Say. Yeah. A, a very um, yeah, we we excited that our main product, Manage Flitter, is hitting two million users next week. We have a competition where you can we're going to fly anyone from well someone from anywhere in the world to Sydney, Australia. Um, so if you'd like to come and hey. Maybe if you've got an interesting story to tell, we can interview you on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. That'd be great. Um, so whether you're in Iceland or you in Melbourne, um, no, but, and um, actually if you're in Australia and you win the competition, we'll fly you anywhere in Australia. Uh-huh. Um, but if you're not, we'll fly you in, come and meet the team. And uh, to enter it, go to manageflitter.com forward slash comp, C-O-M-P for Peter. Um, we've got a cute video that we had a lot of fun doing there. So, um, yeah, we've got our own little milestone happening. We've got, uh, we've got some spare onesies to give the person. Who onesies, <laughs> frisbees, yep. you know, you name it. Um, so Unwanted swag. Swagged, um, definitely. Um, another story you pointed me to, James, Silk Road Rises Again. Um, now, just to tell you, if you're not aware what Silk Road is, Silk Road is uh, a site in the deep, dark recesses of the net where people could buy all sorts of different contraband. Um, I mean, seriously contraband. We're not, we're not talking about, you know, um, I mean, we're talking about hard drugs and things like that. Yeah, I think probably anything that's illegal you could buy there. I don't know if you could buy, um, actually, maybe you could have. Maybe at one time you could have, you could have bought like um, uranium and that kind of stuff, but uh, and, and chemicals. But I think, I think, I think they had a little bit of that stuff on there. But predominantly, yeah, it was a market for illegal drugs. Um, Explain to me, James, this 
dark, what do they call it? Deep internet or dark internet? The Tor network? The just? dark internet, yeah. So it, in theory, um, obviously there's uh, on the normal internet, there's a lot of uh, ways you can be traced. You know, there's lots of things that can kind of track you. and yeah. uh, IP addresses. And yeah, all kinds of stuff that, um, that, can, that can come and track you down. But um, say you do want to run a site that, that, that's like Silk Road that uh, is in theory anonymous. Um, there are technologies like uh, Tor that uh, uh, the ten- technical way it works, I'm not totally sure, but I know that in theory it distributes the traffic across everybody's computer so no single person can be held accountable for the site. So It's like a peer-to-peer type kind of, of like yes. torrents It's kind of thing. like a peer-to-peer thing, a little bit, a lot like torrents, yeah. So um, uh, it basically lets you host sites anonymously. So if you're trying to do something illegal, if you've got uh, material that uh, you don't want traced back to you that you want to publish, then it's... Uh, uh, and you and you want to manage it, um, then it's an interesting option to let people do. And uh, yeah, that, that's effectively where Silk Road ran. And they obviously used um, uh, Bit- Bitcoin as well, because Bitcoin's obviously the first kind of currency that it, that can be um, passed anonymously, well, at least mostly anonymously. Bitcoin's blowing up, by the way. I mean, we'll talk about that again in another episode. But wow, it's going back just, up. Yeah, it's back up. To and there was the first again. Bitcoin ATM that was installed mm. somewhere. I don't know if it was Brussels or something. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But um, you know, it's uh, so it's kind of that combination of technologies, both Tor and uh, and Bitcoin, have allowed it to exist. And um, I mean, the actual story of, of how it exists is a little bit um, uh, unclear, as, and who who's running it, and all that kind of, kind of stuff is very uh, uh, very opaque. There's not that much information about it, but. Uh, somebody was arrested who was who was supposedly running the original Silk Road, and they were they were taken down. Um, and the theory is is that um, the NSA did some kind of snooping and they passed their information across to the the FBI because in theory this stuff is very hard to trace. So it was a very uh, convoluted way that they arrested the guy. Uh, but now the guy's saying he isn't the person who was running it. The plot thickens, <laughs> yeah, which I think is quite an interesting approach because when it is so hard to track track people down, it you know it becomes very hard to sort of pin them down as well. So even if you found the person doing it, I mean, I'm not saying he he was the person, but it is very it's going to be a hard case for them to build to say that you know he really was running the site and um, and making the money off it. So so it's popped back up again in the in on the Tor network. Have you have you ever played with the Tor network? Done a little bit. I think I even looked at the original Silk Road once just to see what it was, and um, and yeah, if you if you, I've, I think I've got um, uh, the tour, a tour browser on my computer that I've that whenever I see a link, I, I click on it just to see. But um, yeah, it's not. Um, I don't know a huge amount about it. I don't spend a huge amount, huge amount of time sort of uh, trawling through it. Yeah. Look. Wow. It's. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's obviously intriguing. I mean, there's something quite spooky about it as well. That there's 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 these worlds can that e- that exist, you know, uh, separate to 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 every check and balance out there. Yeah, look, I mean, the stuff exists everywhere. I think it's that it's so accessible. I mean, there's always going to be a black market for this stuff. Um, the fact that you can access access this black market from your computer, I think, really scares a lot of people because it definitely increases the availability of it. Um, and you know the fact that this site just keeps coming up again it's probably a bit like um, torrents and pirate bay there's there's almost no way you can shut this stuff down and once it just pops up again type thing once that technology exists it's um it's it's just not going away it's the same thing with you know pirate bay how they 
they managed to get all the original people running it, but that site is still running just as well as it was before. Like, they've what what's is Pirate Bay movies? Uh, yeah, so any sort of uh, any torrents, but they're basically the the main torrents are on the web still. Right. And you know, after all these years, they're still operating. They just keep on going and uh, finding new ways around whatever gets thrown at them. So. Um, I'm sure similar things will happen with Silk Road. I suspect it will end up being more of a um, a concept than a than a um, you know a thing per se, and it will just get passed around between people, and it will always get resurrected if it goes down. So, so sort of like a decentralized type of organization that um, people can keep going on their own yeah, back in yeah. a way. Look, there's always going to be people willing to take the risk, both in terms of the selling and the and the buying, and um and even the the running of the site. So, as that as that uh, as people <laughs> people are willing to do that, it's, it's always going to exist. So, if only people would use their force for good, huh? Yeah, you know, this stuff is. I mean, it, it has its place as well. It's not. Um, I, I I think it's a pretty good thing to be honest. Wait, wait till you have kids and you're worried about your 15 year old son. You know, it's just education. It's just. Uh, it's, it's okay. Not, we'll have this chat. <laughs> we'll have this chat again. We'll, well have this chat again. Of, it's not a case of um, this stuff exists. I mean, you can't just kind of ignore it and uh, and um, you know, yes, it's as much the fact that it, that that he or she could purchase drugs on the internet rather than having to sort of find a... Maybe it's better, actually. Maybe they want to purchase <laughs> drugs over the internet. It's better than having to go to some sort of shady part of the city. And uh, I think your children, their computers <laughs> will definitely have key loggers on. And <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember when my brother, who's, who's quite a bit younger than me, I mean, he started using the net and, and he started using it on his own. And, mm. and one or two shady things happened. And I remember getting this feeling of... Uh, wow that's you know he's he's a little kid and he can get sucked into all sorts of strange mm. things and it, w- it, it was scary it, it was actually scary mm. yeah it's definitely going to be uh yeah, definitely must be interesting raising kids in this day and age where they just uh, immediately have all this information just accessible to them and there's very little you can do to stop it I mean, oh, other than other than you know living off the grid yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah i wonder if most people you know if the nsa after taking down things like silk road due to some of their monitoring i wonder if people would actually be a little bit more forgiving you know there's the whole nsa being you know tracking you know the yahoo pipes and the google pipes and everything and it's you know here's a case where there's a, a you know a, a site that that in many ways is is problematic and due to their snooping they can bring it down well, I don't th- I think so. I mean, it's definitely still illegal, whatever they were doing, which is part of the problem, right? The because NSA or Silk Road? NSA. So the NSA has never said that um, that they did actually help because they can't, because they're not technically allowed to. They haven't They haven't had um, warrants and yeah, it's not their, subpoenas. It's not their purview to do it. So yeah. the only way they could do it was by kind of um, monitoring traffic they shouldn't have access to in the first yeah. place. So the theory is that they had this information they and they, they basically... Yeah. told the FBI where to look effectively. So but there's com- a very tenuous thread that the FBI found, and it seems unlikely they would have found it without um, without help from the NSA. So. But come on, law enforcement, I mean, especially at that level, it's definitely, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but... So you, so you support all the NSA? No, uh, I, d- I definitely don't support it, but I'm, I'm, conversation. I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> people are so surprised. Like, I, I'm... It's just so tempting. Like, of course, the governments are monitoring this stuff. Like, it's just too easy for them to yeah. just look. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think I probably always thought it was happening, but but it's a very different thing to kind of think it's happening and know it's happening. It's like, 
it is a slippery slope. Like, I mean, I think we are entitled to our privacy, you know, and I think it would be even great if on well, Facebook... I don't think it's a case of privacy. It's just the fact that they're not abiding by the law. Yes, yeah, so they're above the law. To, exactly. Yeah. You can't not... Even though you might exist to maintain the law, you still have to abide by the law you're trying to protect. Like, they just can't have... It doesn't make any sense to have organizations that can exist that are rogue. the law. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So Yeah, no, to have rogue um, rogue organizations definitely doesn't make sense. I think that's the main objection I have to it. So. In South Africa, there were some interesting cases um, of um, some special units going rogue, and they, they caused all sorts of problems. But anyway, that's that's a discussion for another day. But this whole NSA story is, is quite interesting. We should maybe speak to some uh, experts at some stage. Mm. See so if we can get... Um the Australian guy. Um, oh, Julian Assange. Julian Assange. That's Assange a, you yeah. know, that's actually a very good idea. Good you know, I went to a talk at the Opera House with with Assange, and he was he was video conferenced in, and mm. there was some other people involved. I wish I could remember their names, but the, man, they were super smart, mm. and they really had a lot of interesting things to say. Mm. And I, I really take my hat off to those to those people. I mean, you know, it was it's due to Snowden that all of this came about, and these people essentially sacrifice their life in many yeah for a principle yeah for yeah. for a principle i mean uh, i'm I, yeah I've, i would yeah I, I don't know if i would uh <laughs> do the same thing yeah i don't know either. yeah it's a hard one. you're listening to episode 29 of the it's a monkey podcast with kevin garber and back in the other hot seat is james peter fresh and bright-eyed from his uh, honeymoon in new zealand we got an email from a listener james will norman um if thank you for the email will if you want to email us it's podcast at it's a monkey.com he said, um, this is the first time that I've listened to your podcast and audio weekly social media view is fairly unique. The 48 plus minutes might be a bit long for your average listener, but I enjoyed it. So that's Will Norman from Micro Delights. I mean, the, the, the time length, you can argue it two ways, but you know, some people do like the long form, but um, yeah, it's, you know, do with it what you will if you get bored of us. Probably like because I wasn't on it. So. <laughs> <laughs> no. It was around. Come yeah, on. No, it, it is. Uh, I, I always like the longer podcast. I've, I've I also always do. preferred listening to longer ones because you don't have to listen to the whole thing. You just kind of, you know, yeah. just listen to as much as you have time for. And um, and we break it up with the interview. And, but anyway, if you've got any opinions on, on the podcast, particularly guests, if you're interested in guests, I had, you know, James, I particularly wanted to get a, 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 te- a female tech founder mm-hmm. um, because we haven't, you know, it's just I like the balance. And I really struggle to. But anyway, let's let's go to a break and then we'll to go to the interview with Rebecca Campbell from Posse. And then um, afterwards, we'll chat a little bit more about that. So stay with us. We'll be back after this. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back. Find new people to follow. Track keywords on Twitter. And schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You're back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. It is Friday, the 8th of November in Sydney, almost summer in Sydney. And we have a very special guest, um, which I'm happy to say sitting in the studio with us, which is quite a, a rare occasion. Usually we have guests at the end of the Skype line. So in the studio with me is Rebecca Campbell, who is the CEO and founder of Posse, who is based just down the road in Sydney. Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I'm going to get straight into the, um, 
We'll talk a little bit about Posse later. Um, you guys are doing interesting stuff with Posse, but I'd like to just talk about something that I saw in one of the articles that you wrote in, in BRW, which is one of the Australian magazines, the business magazines. You quoted a stat there that really, um, I'm, I'm still quite astounded when I see that stat that only 3% of Australians who launch technology companies are women. Where, where is that stat from? Uh, it's from a Deloitte study that was conducted last year. I mean, that is, I mean, 3% is a lot closer to zero than anything. I mean, when I see yeah. 3%, I, I actually sort of see zero. It's almost like there's a few anomalies, but, but no, no women are really starting tech businesses in Australia. Yeah, I mean, there's a few, there's a few, I guess there are anomalies. I mean, I see them because they kind of seem to hunt, you know, seek me out. So, so yeah, I see a few of them, but it is overall, um, as soon as you go to a, a tech conference or any kind of startup conference, you'll look around the room and it's virtually all men. What, so do you know what the stats are for the US? I don't know. And for New Zealand? I'm not sure, but I know that they're similar. I, I know that ever similar stats around the world. Do you think there are structural issues with the industry or it's just a matter of what women are drawn to? Um, I think it's a number of things. I think that it starts at school and what um, girls perceive as being attractive careers. And I know that when I was at school, you know, this, I went to a girls' school, the smart girls took uh, like the languages and history and Latin and so that, they're the things that I took. And we, I never would have thought of, um, you know, I was also quite into physics actually and, and I studied a bit of physics at university, but I never even thought about computer science as a career. It just wasn't something that was even spoke, spoken about at school. And so because I didn't learn to write code, you know, I never thought about really starting a tech company. And so most people who start tech companies are, are computer engineers. Um, so I think that's one aspect of it. Um, another aspect is I think it's a, it's a risk thing. Um, there's a Harvard study which I read which talked about you know, why there are less women, you know, more women start businesses overall, but they're generally small businesses. Um, and, and lifestyle businesses in a way as opposed to, you know, swing for the fences type businesses. Yeah, they're not high growth, high risk businesses. And also there's the, the stats are very similar um, in, in VC, so it's around about 97% of VCs are guys as well, wow. so it's uh, it's similar. And it's to do with um, the way girls are raised, and girls are raised to take less risks and to take care of things, whereas boys are more raised to jump off, you know, rocks and mm. climb trees, and that, like that's seen as being a, a good thing. And so that's where they, that's the study thought that, you know, the problem had, had started. I mean, I think you bring up a very good point, the propensity for risk yeah. Um, it, it is is an absolute core element in a culture of entrepreneurship. I mean, you know, everyone talks about Silicon Valley and Israel, and and Israel, you know, for a variety of reasons, their propensity for risks is very high, and the startups they churn out of there is is beyond belief. And Australia is a, it's people aren't comfortable with risk. It's a it's a steady state type of um, economy. It's a steady state steady state type of um, you, you know there's a lot more to lose in a way than to gain in Australia mm. yeah I, I'm not sure I mean I've personally always taken big risks and just throughout life I'm, I'm not really sure why that is but it's just something which I guess is inherent in me so 
I mean, are you critical of the industry that the industry should do more? I mean, there's this debate whether, you know, um, the industry should be be active, you know, should, um, Mm. you know, find female board members or or should Uh, it just let it take its course? I mean, I do think that as a woman, I think women do bring a different perspective to business. And so, you know, I think it's a positive thing to try and have more women on boards. Um, but obviously it has to be merit-based as well. Um, I think the industry is trying, you know, like pretty hard, probably could try harder. It, it still frustrates me when I turn up to a conference and there's no women speakers. And like there was a startup conference in Sydney recently, you know, which was one probably the biggest startup conference of the year and there was no women speaking. Mm. And it was just like, well, there's, there's, there's young girls here and they're interested in starting businesses, but... There are role models out there if you look for them. You know, it's, it's, it's hard it, it though. Should make, you should make an effort to make sure that there are you know, women on, on the bills for these types of, of events. And I think in general they do make an effort, but I think we could make more of an effort. I think really if we're going to make a major shift, it has to start at school, school age and how, how girls perceive themselves and, and perceive entrepreneurship as a potential career. But I think, um, I think you... you need that role model for these girls in school a female role model for these yeah. girls in schools yeah, which is a bit of a chicken and egg situation right yeah girls need to think you know what am i going to do when i grow up you know mm. i'm going to be an entrepreneur that's something that is that's something which i could do it's, a, it's an option for me i mean there, there's a similar issue with entrepreneurship in general in australia where the smart people um there still is an issue that the smart people become lawyers or doctors or bankers they don't become entrepreneurs, where in some other countries the smart people are drawn to entrepreneurship a lot more. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Maybe it is a risk thing. I, I, I haven't done enough study into the Australian culture to know what the um, you know, risk profile is of general people. So what's, um, what difference perspective do you think i mean you you have you run a tech company you work with developers are all your developers males yes uh, i mean what different perspective do you feel that um, you bring well i think that i approach problems more from a people perspective so um i like to spend lots of time talking to you know, people who use the product or who might use the product and i think i'm pretty good at working out what they would like to do potential customers you know when you're building a new thing they won't say i really wish i had something that did this Mm. they don't tell you what they want but it's you know it does take intuition to be able to ask them leading questions and then you know see how they answer and then to be able to derive from that what actually would really excite them so i think i'm pretty good at that and you know i think that only women are good at that but i think probably in general women are probably better at that whereas i think you know from my experience with working with developers the, uh, the developers are much more data and metrics driven. And so, you know, if I want to argue why we should build a certain feature, you know, intuitively I can say, well, I met these users and they said this and that leads me to believe this and this and this. But they're always like, show me the data, show me show me what, you know, why that's important. And so then it really puts it back onto me to go back and, and prove to them why something is a good idea. And I think that the combination of the two disciplines of, of intuition and vision, you know, in, intuitive vision combined with 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 metrics and and like you know good data i think that's what builds a great startup reading between the lines i think yeah women can be 
terrific at reading between the lines. And obviously, we're generalizing. People have their strengths, but it's definitely something. I, I think that is a huge advantage in running a business is a lot of communication, even in managing the staff, is about what's not said as opposed to what's said. Yeah. And I think that um, is definitely a huge advantage. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Sydney, I mean, startup scene and, ma- and maybe even the New Zealand startup scene, which you've got, uh, you're originally from New Zealand many years ago. Um, there's there's a lot of buzz at the moment, which is great. There's a lot of debate about what can we do to generate uh, more successful startups. I mean, you've seemed to have gone through the whole cycle that you've raised money, you're, you're building a, you're trying to ramp up a, a global tech business. Um, is there anything that Sydney can do better? I mean, in a, in a way, it's a similar issue to the you're not enough females in tech issue. There's structural issues, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you can't really force the issue as well. I think that there's a big, um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of hype at the beginning of the process. So lots of people out there think, yeah, I want to be a tech entrepreneur and I've got an idea and I can do it. And mm-hmm. I think now there's the resources and the community to be able to actually get started. You can put together a little team, you can attend lots of, really fun and inspiring conferences you can probably raise some angel investment because there's some good angel groups out there you can get started i think where the real problem is is after three six even 12 months that's where it gets Mm. really 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 hard crunch time that's crunch time and Mm. that's when you know your ain't the angel enthusiasm has gone because you, you know angels are always looking for the next big thing and unless you can prove yourself very very quickly it's hard to, um, you know, when you get to that six or 12 months point, that's where everybody's giving up. So there's a lot of people starting businesses in Sydney and there's a lot of people, you know, this whole sense of like idea of failing fast has become very trendy. And mm. I know that there are incubators out there that clap teams when they fail and they clap them out the door. And it's just like, mm. I think that that is a quite a, uh, an immature, that, that is a sign of an immature startup market. Mm. And I think that, you know, Yes, we've got to learn fast and pivot and change and things. But really, if you look at somewhere like the, you know the US and companies that have made it, like Twitter or Groupon or eBay, you know, all of those companies were going for several years. You know, Pinterest, like Airbnb, they were they were all you know struggled for years and years before they actually took off. And it doesn't take three months or six months or even twelve months of hype. It takes three years of really slugging it out and learning and pivoting and you know and that's the that's the challenge like how can we get companies who after six or 12 months have shown some that they've learned that they've you know there's still there's a sense of an idea there but they haven't yet taken off to that like three or four year mark where they can actually will turn into something that's where all that's where they're all failing that's where there's no funding and there's not really any support either at that stage. So you know, I've kind of been through two years in this phase and it's really, really freaking hard. And um, and yeah, we're finally starting to get out and now get some traction and yeah, and we've raised, we're lucky enough to raise some money, but we had to go overseas and raise money. We, you can't raise money in Australia for that for that phase. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, it's, it's, it's the marathon, you know, and I yeah. always say to our team, it's the marathon and the, the, the glamour of launching new shiny bits is is incredibly exciting but the marathon of it there's a lot of unexciting bits and um the the, the glamour is really not as 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 loud as people people think it is it takes many years for the overnight success yeah 
Um, we'll get into the Posse story soon, but I just want to pick your brain a little bit more about, um, um, I love talking to entrepreneurs on the coal face. And, you know, what are, what are some, you know, two or three things you wish you'd had known two or three years ago, both in terms of building the business and running the day to day? Um, I guess, hmm, that's a good question. The things that I wish I'd known at the beginning, well, if you're building a tech company, it really helps to have an awesome tech founder. So I think I probably would have tried to have found a, a partner, a tech partner at the beginning. How deep are your tech uh, skills? Uh, not, not really, like I can't write, I can't write code. Right. But um, I understand what the engineers are doing. Mm -hmm. I understand why things take time and I understand what causes right. bugs. So, I mean, I've learned a lot. But, yeah, I don't write code. It would be actually really great to have some write, some you know, engineering experience. Um, I would spend a lot longer at the beginning. Probably my number one tip would be I would have spent a lot longer at the beginning on the idea and really, um, you know, at the beginning you've got this beautiful thing of a blank piece of paper mm. and you can look at any industry and look at what you, you know and really find, you know, a big hole, like some massive problem that needs to be solved and a big market and you know, just plan everything much. I would have thought the whole thing through a lot, a lot more. I started because I had a problem in my existing business, which was music. I built a little, you know, I did an offline, offline built an offline solution to solve that problem put that online and then it's like hey we could turn this into something that was kind of how I came up with my idea um, and then we've pivoted and, and evolved from there but it's never been a blank piece of paper I would just love to to be able to start a business and have a blank piece of paper and really research what is the abs absolute best you know solution I could solve for a really big problem because once you start building the lattice of something it's very hard to to point the ship out it's not impossible yeah. but it's it's a lot more complicated, right? Yeah, I would spend a lot of time researching um, and thinking before and planning before I before I started, which is your, no, which is probably my biggest mistake, I would say. Um, but that being said, analysis paralysis is a very big problem as well. That's yeah. true. Um, particularly for university-educated people, where university really teaches you to critically think, assess all the options, SWOT analysis, and it doesn't really push on the momentum side of things. And the momentum is also, I think, getting out there and, and, and getting the traction also gives you data points that you couldn't have even imagined. That's true. I mean, when I started the business, I knew nothing. I, I didn't hadn't even heard the word startup. I was just a... Uh, I'd never read a book on building a tech company except I'd read you know, the Google story and the Facebook story and stuff. But that was really the amount of education that I had. I didn't go to conferences. I just started. And I think, you know, there's there's definitely some pros in that, which is that you just you learn as you go and you get you, you get off and you actually do something. Where yet there it's true, there are a lot of I have seen a lot of people like conferences I've spoken at year after year and then I'm like have you started your business yet and they're like oh no still still thinking about this still planning this and yeah you've just got to at some point you've got to you just got to rubber's got to hit the road you've got to get going I, I say to you know uh, youngsters I say that the earlier you start the business the better there, there's a process there seems to be a process that entrepreneurs go through that whether you start your business at 18 or 60, this, this sort of learning process, the cycle that you just can only, um, you know, take on once you're in a business and you and you go through all those elements. And the sooner you, mm -hmm. you, you, you go through that, I feel the better. So I'm always encouraging people to, 
to start their businesses as young as possible. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I wish I'd had the confidence to start this when I was much younger. I mean, I had an idea. I remember when I was 18, you know, all my friends had started traveling overseas and they were emailing around these groups of photos mm. of their trip just to email groups because it was before any social networks. And I had this idea of like, hey, wouldn't it be really cool if there was a website where you could put photo? everyone could put their photos, everyone could see each other's photographs. It was essentially a social network. And I registered Habitat oh, as the, nice. and it was like, at Habitat.com? It was doc, it was doc.co.nz. Yeah. I wasn't thinking that big at that age, but um, I was just thinking of building it and I went out and specced it all out and found a developer and everything. And wow. then I just, yeah, I just, just didn't have the confidence to follow through. I, you know, I had another, I got offered a job in Sydney and I took that job and I worked for a year at another company. And then I went out and started my own business, but it wasn't in tech. But yeah, I really wish I'd started that company. We then. could have been having a very different conversation. <laughs> um, Interesting, you know, when, when Friendster first came out, um, I logged onto Friendster and I was, fa- you know, which is, if, if people haven't heard of it, it's the, it's the precursor to, to Facebook, a competitor that fizzled, but it had some traction in the early days. And I remember being so fascinated by it. I sat down. I can even picture, I've even got the scene where in my apartment I sat down and I sent this group email to every single one of my friends and I said, why it is important that we all join this website. I just found it fascinating we could see each other's social connections. And similarly, I reflect on back on that and, and of, of just seeing, I, I sense there was something big in it, but somehow I didn't join the dots to what can I really do with this? And um, I also sort of regret somehow not just really jumping on that. But hindsight's always always the, yeah. the, the, the perfect vision. So... Um, Maybe our paths are, are, are different. Um, so tell us about Posse. Oh, so Posse, you know, in the background is it started as a music site. So mm-hmm. my background is band management. So the business I started after I moved to Sydney was a band management company. And I built that company over about eight years. And then, you know, I originally started Posse as, as a site where you'd create playlists of your favorite artists. And then your friends could buy tickets. They'd see your lists of places, that, you know, the sorry, the bands that you like, and they could buy tickets to concerts. And we would take a commission off the ticket sales and we integrated with different ticketing sites. And, you know, it did pretty well. Like I raised some money and we sold a couple of million dollars worth of tickets, And but it just didn't scale. Was mm. The cost to acquire every band was very high. And so I ended up selling that to the our largest client, which was Future Music, and they still run that as Future Fans. Mm-hmm. And then I went out and said, well, we've learned a huge amount about how communities work, um, how to build this two-sided network of, you know, fans and was bands, but it was anything really that had a, had a product. So, like, what other industries are there that have, that have um, products to that and, and fans? And so then we started thinking about retail. And so at that point, I went, actually did go out and do a whole lot of research, several months of research of, um, of both shopkeepers and, you know, people to figure out what their problems were on, on both sides of the market. Um, what, what year was this? This was 2000 and we only started building this last year, so 2012. Okay, so Foursquare and Yelp and they're all pretty established yeah, already. Yeah, Foursquare was out definitely and Yelp. Um, we looked at both of those platforms and what were the problems with those platforms. Um, why were people using them? Why, were, why weren't people using them? People that yeah. were using them, what if they... What were their pain points? Um, so what Posse does is it's a you 
when you join it, you create these little collections of your favorite places. They're playlists, much the same as the music site was playlists, but they're 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 like virtual streets. So you choose, you know, a theme. It's very pretty. You could choose Sydney or Melbourne or San Francisco or Auckland or brunch or wine or Japanese or you know whatever it is that you're into. And then you add all of your favorite merchants. And we've made these little beautiful hand-drawn versions of all the merchants. Because it's really fun and it's pretty, it's actually quite similar to something like Pinterest. It's just instead of being photos, it's it's places. And you create these like lists of your favorite places that your friends can see. And it's very beautiful. The one thing I found interesting is that you, you, um, you designed this, um, or you say in, in one article I read, you designed this for women. Uh, yeah, we did. We designed it. Well, it's not ins- exclusively for women. We've got but about. But they were. I mean, y- y- the sort of aesthetic yeah. were, was was targeted more towards them, which is another uh, interesting point. And in that most, you, you know, social media is dominated by women. A certain element of the world's domi- of the social media tech world's dominated by women. I think there's a, a great opportunity to target, to customize is a better word for this target yeah. market. I think it's smart. Well, one thing we did is at the beginning, we thought well, we, we, we worked out the strategy and we wanted to know, okay, how are we going to design this? And as soon as we started coming up with designs, you know, there was always people that loved certain designs and hated other designs. Mm. So we're like, okay, well, you know, we can't choose something that pleases everybody because then you just get something boring. Mm. Right? So we want something that some people are going to love, but we don't want it to be too niche because we want this to be a big platform. Mm. And so I was like, okay, we're going to define our audience, but it's going to be a big audience. And so we defined, it's like five different audience segments. So f- we've got five different personas of um, who our audience is. And it just so happens that four of them are women. Um, so about 72% of our uh, people that use Posse now are, are female, but obviously not exclusively. Um, and they all have things in common as well. So and we designed it based on different behavioral traits that we got from interviewing people. And then we got together groups of of example users and each of the different representing each of the different personas and then we tested all our designs on on them and then so long as they all loved it then that was that was all we needed it doesn't matter if there's like you know guys who live in the outer suburbs who go to the pub and watch rugby you know they're never going to like our designs Mm. so it doesn't really matter yeah you can't uh, you can't be everything to everyone yeah and i mean um do you release any user numbers or anything uh, yeah how many users do we have now? We have about 56,000 users and we have um, 37,000 merchants. Wow. Nearly as so many merchants. 37,000 yeah. merchants. And is that yeah. at the stage, is that mainly Australia? Um, it's about 50% Australia. Okay. Second biggest market for us is New Zealand. The US is pretty big. Like New York, we have about 1,500 merchants in New York that have signed up. Um, uh, Japan has, has got some nice traction. Philippines is doing pretty well. And but Singapore, Hong Kong, UK a little... Um, yeah, so it's it's everywhere. And these merchants, some of them are paying money? Uh, so when you recommend a merchant, we have a call center that will, so we've built our own database. Right. So as soon as you recommend or you add a favorite merchant to your posse list, then we call that merchant and tell them, that, you know, hey, just letting you know that, you know, David's recommended you as one of his favorite places in the world. And then we say what that what David has said about them and, and we ask them if they'd like to join the site. and. Almost all of them join. We convert about 95%. Um, and then we have their email address. We start emailing them updates of whenever anybody else recommends them, what they're saying, who their customers are, who their competition is, you know, what other stores they're 
the customers like, we're going to enable the stores to network with each other. So at the moment, we just have all the stores signed up and engaging. We get like 25% um, active use users of the stores weekly. So that's like the stores are really engaging with it, which is which is exciting. And then we're going to start charging the stores probably around midway through next year. For um, They'll still be able to use it for free. But there's some analytics and some capability they that w- they won't be able to do unless they're a subscriber. I think that's great. I think uh, I think that's a very smart business model. And I think, y- you know, ironically, even though going into stores and restaurants and bars, even though it's a physical experience, somehow it's very difficult to communicate with decision makers and the people mm. that matter in those places. So it makes sense to to drive. To, to drive engagement somehow and I would imagine stores and, and and restaurants that really get it any opportunity to drive the right type of engagement is is a no-brainer for them yeah yeah so I mean you most businesses like this like posse the biggest challenge is the cost to acquire small merchants is generally mm. pretty high you got to do that what through telemarketing or yeah yeah but we've got this really slick nice way of, of onboarding merchants which costs us about two dollars for every merchant that we onboard through someone's someone's recommended them you know one of their customers they may well know they've said something nice that's often personal to that store we can read it to the store owner they're always chuffed and 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 then so it's a very nice conversation i would imagine i mean new york has got i believe just manhattan has got sixty thousand restaurants if i stand correct something around that and um did i read you guys are actually relocating to new york is that right um, I've been. No, we're not relocating to New York. I've spent a bit of. I think of this the TechCrunch article might have said that. Uh, I've spent a bit of time in New York this year, so yep. I've spent about six months or so in New York, mm-hmm. focused on um, on fundraising. <laughs> I guess right back to my earlier conversation. So, you, so we you couldn't fundraise in Australia. So, I mean, we could fundraise in Australia, but um, there's just there's no real natural fit for investors in Australia at this at that particular stage. And I would imagine so the terms are not as good here, right? The the funding's more expensive. They they want they want um, the largest chunk of the equity here, the valuations and things like that. Uh, I didn't really find that. I just no? found that the stage we That's were at good. at that point was um, it was a hard stage. You know, it's easier at the beginning when you're looking for angel investment, and it's easier for us now that we've got good traction and mm-hmm. you know, engagement. But that's the space in the middle where you're still finding your feet. That's it's a really hard space. They don't to want to, to hold invest. your hand and share the journey with you and yeah. jump across the raging river. Whereas I found that the U.S. firms and, and Europeans and U.S. firms are more, much more, um, like they used to used it. Used to it, yeah. Yeah, they used to it. They used to it. So, um, um, are these uh, VC fi- uh, companies? Are they angels? Combinate like mixture. combination. So you managed to get. I mean, your initial funding. You, you've got some terrific. Um, you, you know. Um, investors people that are involved in some of the google maps and i mean how did how did that come about was that just through you seeking them out or or um i mean honestly a lot of it was luck it's just um being in the right place at the right time i met lars who's the google maps founder at a conference and i wasn't even at the attending the conference i went in to give a little two-minute update on posse and then someone pointed him out in the foyer and said you should try and meet that guy because you know, he's the, in fact, they didn't even say why I should meet him, but I was having tech, tech challenges at that time. I was mm-hmm. you know, really struggling to build the right development team. I wasn't sure if I had the right team. And so I was just learning that. And so I heard he had something to do with Google. And so I was just like, I have to go, but I'll just bowl up to him. And, and so I bowled up to Lars and said, hey, 
I don't know who you are, but <laughs> that guy over there told me I should try and meet you. And so I said, I'm Rebecca. And then <laughs> he's like, hey, I'm Lars. And so I said, I've got this company. And then I did the you know two-minute elevator pitch. And he says, that sounds really cool. And, I'm, and then he said, I'm like, I founded Google Maps. Or uh, he said, I'm from Google Maps. I said, oh, cool. What do you do at Google Maps? And he's like, I started it. <laughs> like, okay, cool. Not many people you can, can say that. You can probably help me. And so... Um, and so I said, would you, I've got to run, but would you mind having coffee with me and giving me some advice because I'm looking at building a tech team and you know, I'm not sure that I've got the right team. And he said, sure. And so I got his details and then I met him for coffee a couple of days later and we ended up becoming good friends and you know, he joined the board eventually. He helped me recruit somebody from Google who built the development team and he, um, he, you know, he remains on the board. He invested in the business. He, he remains a very good friend as well. So I've got this. I've got a whole range of stories like that that I could tell you. That just incredible luck. Um, but it's only fifty percent luck, though. You were at the conference and you went up to him and you spoke to him. Yes, that's true. It's true. So it's it's it meets your halfway luck. It's true. It's true. And also, um, you do enough meetings. Like you know, I've been unlucky so many other times. So I mean, I've for the fifty or so people that have invested in Posse. I reckon I've done 950 other meetings mm. that people that haven't invested in Posse, and so. And I think, and I think that's what people forget. It's so easy to forget. I have some friends that say, "Oh, you're so lucky. You got your own successful business." And it's yes, there is luck involved, but but that grindstone. I'm not quite sure that they realise how deep it goes and the the um, the setbacks. How how many setbacks are a necessary yeah. part of this journey? Yeah, that's it's hard. It's really hard going. It's um you got you got to dig deep sometimes. So um, Posse, you guys have an iPhone app and Android's on the way, I believe. Android is on the way, yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but do, do people mostly use it on mobile or web or both? Web. We're about ninety percent mobile. So we have a you know, we have a small development team. So we haven't given the website too much love in a while. But it's getting an overhaul early next year. But um yeah, it's mainly it's mainly iOS at the moment. Is your dev team all in Sydney? Uh, mainly in Sydney, and we also have um, we're in the process of building a second team in the Philippines. Okay. Um, any reason you chose the Philippines? Uh, yes. Well, we tried India, and it was unsuccessful. Right. Um, it's just yeah, I just found that the culture wasn't quite right, right. for for a startup. Right. People tend to write code, you know, f- for pay, and then go home, and and that's kind of there's no real passion, and right. and English wasn't great, and it was hard to communicate. So it was ch- it was challenging. Um, but you know, I spent time in the Philippines because our call center is there. Right. And I just found as I spent time there, you know, there's a thriving startup scene. They have hackathons. Okay. They, um, you know, there are incubators. Is this there's, in Manila? Yeah, in Manila. There's a right. really thriving startup scene. There's a lot of very smart people. Some of the universities are very good. You know, Google is starting a five, just bought a five-story building there, so they're building a big office there. So there's a yeah, Manila is going is a is a great place for you know developers that are who are passionate and who are looking to do interesting things interesting to know it's very culturally very different to india and their english is amazing because their entire education system is done in english and they, they even speak english with an american twang don't they yeah. yeah so um so so yeah we've found some really great developers there that have have we've interviewed using the same you know google style techniques that we use to interview our developers in sydney and they've and they've come through with flying colors so interesting it's, it's hard you know, it's obviously it's not easy, and you, you know, we've had hundreds and hundreds of applications for six roles. So mm, wow. it's a lot of work in finding the right people. But yeah, when you get there, it's 
it's um it's worth it and it's obviously a lot cheaper so you can have much bigger team um rebecca campbell founder and ceo of posse i really appreciate you coming into the managed flutter office and and talking to us on the it's a monkey podcast it's really nice to have a successful sydney founder kiwi founder <laughs> female founder and um i wish you all the success with redhead posse founder as well it's redhead <laughs> founder all the minorities yeah it's um <laughs> you definitely yeah um cover a few bases there and and yeah look um good luck with posse keep us in the loop if there's any developments we'd we'd love to talk with you and um i think uh, it's it sounds like uh, you guys are on an interesting path cool thank you very much Thanks for your time. The Bye-bye. It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one month free budgie account. Five, four, three, two, one. Um, pretty unusual, James, for us to have a female tech founder, Australian, in the studio. And she had a lot of interesting things to say. Yeah, it was great. Great and fair. I really enjoyed listening to it. Yeah. 3% of tech founders in Australia are women. So that's basically just her, right? <laughs> that's what I said to her. It's basically zero. Let's, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I really struggled, as I said, before the break. Um in America, obviously, due to numbers, it's a little bit easier, but it's still mm. difficult. Now, I don't know, you know, to have the whole gender debate and, um, you know, I, I mean, we can go around in circles. I think it's good for the industry for it to have some diversity. You know, as she said, the approach women tend to take a slightly more people centric, intuitive approach. Mm. Um, I don't know. Wh- I mean, what, what are you, what are your thoughts? I don't see sex, so it doesn't doesn't bother me. Like you know, it doesn't. You don't I, see it I've because you're a white male, right? That's why maybe, you don't see it. Maybe that's true, but I just don't. It's never been a big deal to me, and I know maybe that's because I'm in a privileged position. I'm just like everybody else, but I never think like, oh, it's, she's a female founder. I just think, oh, it's a founder. So like, it's just not. I don't know. It's just never been a big deal to me, and maybe that's maybe that's since being insensitive. Maybe I should care more and do something about it, but. Um, but um, I mean, in some ways, I think that's almost the solution to the problem: is to, is to, is to, is to kind of not point it out. <laughs> like it's almost. Yeah, I, d- I mean, I hear you, and I think I think you're both right and wrong, in my opinion. I think I think there is an element of our privileged position. I mean, speaking to women, you know, they it's on their mind a lot. These mm. issues, they notice it, they think about it. When there was a female prime minister, even if they didn't like her, they were excited by the symbolism around it. Mm. They, yeah, love Mar- they love Marissa Mayer, they love Sheryl Sandberg. They, you know, they love women going places. It gives them role models, it gives them inspiration. I think we don't know what it's, it's our world is so full of, you know, inspirational guys and do like, I think we don't know what it's like to be on the margins. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I can think of situations where, um, where I might be on the margins and other situations where it does make a difference. So I guess it is a good point, but, um, maybe I should care more. Maybe I should, uh, think about it more often, but, um, I think it's just because you don't, it's, it, there's just so few mi- women in tech anyway. It's just never really, it's always been that way. You think about in any case, it's just, uh, yeah, just just nobody around really. 
but um and there's the flip side which i mean i'm very supportive i'm i'm you know of 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 the gender equality and i'm very sensitive to the challenges women have but on the flip side the one thing i do get a little bit frustrated of is you know it's much easier for them to get noticed in a good way as well they've got they've got advantages because there are a lot of investors that do want to support successful women in tech there are a lot of companies that do want to have great women on the board mm. in tech so in in a way they also you know it's their challenge to actually and rebecca did say that you know she does get noticed and she she does get a lot of conference invites um yeah it's true i mean it's even the case you know when we hire developers and that kind of stuff you know it's not um not that we even really look at whether they're male or female but you know when we do see a female developer like it's you know we get a little bit excited that, yeah the fact that you know that it's that something different or whatever so um there's, there's definitely that element there that i think it's probably helpful to them but you know by the same token nobody wants to uh you know hire people who aren't qualified or obviously in the case of and entrepreneurs give people who don't don't justify an investment so no and no one still have to just work just as hard to actually get the positions so. yeah no, and no one argues for that at all i mean mm. i think very few people argue for that but I don't know. I still feel weird at this point in history, you know, with things happen like Twitter's board has no females. Um, the cabinet in Australia has got one female. I, I just maybe maybe I've been hijacked by the women's movement. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but no, I, I do feel, you know, secretly, I mean, secretly. I mean, most, you know, women are all over social media. I mean, they could have Lady Gaga on the board. It's just I don't know. I'm like, it, it, it it's. It feels a little bit old-fashioned men's boys club. I'm just like really like, you know, the whole board doesn't have one female. That's almost like too coincidental, you know, when most of your users, I think a little bit more than 50% of them are female. Mm. You know, and they are on record saying, yeah, of course we want diversity. We just couldn't find the right people. But I don't know, maybe it's the same thing that you say. Maybe, you know, maybe that, that just somehow, somehow they... Just they, don't think about it. They just, just don't think about it and they, mind, and they yeah. tune out, which is both good and bad. But um, anyway, what do you think of Posse? Yeah, Posse is very interesting. Um, it's kind of like a, a way to share places you've been. Yeah, it's a very interesting concept. Yeah, Posse's I had a look. I mean, what I found interesting is that um, they target Posse at women, which I think is a very underutilized <laughs> uh, business strategy, mm. actually, because, you know... I think to target it, women do have, I mean, Pinterest has been driven by women in the Midwest of the US. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the, the way women use tech now and social media, I actually think it's quite smart hmm. to target stuff at women. Yeah, yeah, it would be, yeah. Yeah, no, it's obviously yeah, an under-serviced market. So if they have less things competing for their attention, it's going to be easier to gain traction. So, yeah, makes a lot of sense. I like the idea of... Like I like the idea of music playlists, and I sort of like the idea of having playlists in life. And uh, there's some there, there's something there's something in that. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely something there. And um, Rebecca's definitely uh, she's got that. You know, when you meet entrepreneurs and you you you, uh, you it's a real certain type of breed. She's got that she's got that tenacity in her look mm. and, and and in her you know and and that's what you need in business i mean more than anything people think that you need the idea or you need the connections but you actually the one thing you really need is just the tenacity yeah for the for the tenure overnight success yeah just to stick with it stick it to it yeah yep. that's that's what's the biggest predictor of success <laughs> you know never given up don't give up so um 
Anyway, I think that's it for episode 29. We will be back in two weeks. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please tweet us at monkeypodcast. Please email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. Um, send us ideas. And in fact, if you want a managed flitter frisbee, send us an email with what you think of the show. We'll send you a limited edition Ferrari Red Manage Flitter Frisbee. Enter the Manage Flitter competition at manageflitter.com forward slash comp. Win a ticket to Australia and we will speak to you in two weeks time. Have a good one.